Good morning. My name is Sean Sears. I'm the lead pastor here at Grace. I want to say thank you uh, very much uh, for being a part of our service today. We are uh, in in uh, the third week of this series called uh, uh, Curveball. Um, and the idea is to talk about the way that life sometimes throws us a curve. Things happen in our life that we're not expecting. I remember that the first time, uh, like the first big time this ever happened to me in my life is that uh, I was a junior in a high school. I'm not very good of, at football. Uh, I love watching football. I'm just always afraid of getting hit. And then after my junior year, uh, our quarterback graduated and we had nobody else. So our coach picked me to be the starting quarterback for my senior year. So I was pretty excited about this. Not because I'm any good uh, and because I'm not very good, he made me come in like, like two or three times a week all summer long. And then the week before uh, my senior year, my family moved all the way across the country. We were living in Orlando at the time and we moved to Denver. So we moved to Denver the week before my senior year, and I essentially graduated with a group of strangers. That was, that was a curveball. That's when my life was going one direction, right? I thought it was coming this way, and at the last minute, it went, it went, it went like that. There was another time uh, my wife and I were dating. Uh, we'd been dating long enough that I knew I wanted to spend the rest of my entire life with her. I bought a wedding ring. I bought the wedding ring in November. Uh, then we went home for Christmas break, and I was going to propose to her when we came back to college at the end of Christmas break. And while she was uh, home on break, she was in a car accident. Uh, her face went through a window. Uh, her heart stopped beating, uh, and she stopped breathing. They had to resuscitate or bring her back. And I remember getting a phone call from now, my sister-in-law saying Billy Jane was in an accident. And then she paused. I thought she was dead. It was a horrible, horrible experience. But my life was going one direction, right? And then at the last second, it curved on me. Like it, it, like life threw, life threw me a curve. That's happened at other points in our lives. Uh, I know that when we first moved here uh, to Boston. We were living in an apartment, and it was a month-to-month situation, uh, but I thought that we, and I think we were kind of, it, we thought we had the apartment for much longer than what we ended up having the apartment. The landlord didn't do anything unethical. Uh, he just told us we had to get out sooner than what we thought we had to get out, and we had nowhere to go, and we had just found out the week before that Billy Jane was pregnant with our third child, which we were not also expecting. So that was like a crazy time in, in our life. Uh, so that was, that was difficult. I, I moved from Denver to Boston in 2001 uh, after selling everything there, quitting my job there, coming all the way out here for a job that I thought would fill me up, make me happy for the rest of my life, only to find out that I was unbelievably miserable doing what I was doing and I felt stuck because there was nothing for us to go go back to an, another curveball. Now, there's some times where you can take a curve and you can still put the bat, the bat on the ball and you can smack it, right? Like you like sometimes there's good things that you can see right away that come from the, that that curveball that that wouldn't have happened in any any other way and and that's that's awesome. Then there's other ways which which it we never see on this side of, of life what good comes from that. I, I know that the friends that I made in Denver uh, led to uh, Garrett getting his first grown-up real job after he graduated from college. Uh, I know that when we lost the apartment in Hyde Park, it led to us uh, buying a home in Stoughton, not because we were trying to move into Stoughton. We just wanted a nice house that we could afford that ended up being in Stoughton, uh, where we've raised all of our kids and now hope to retire. Like, I want to live the rest of my life in this town that we found on accident that we would have never found without that curveball. 
And then the third son, the third child, sorry, second son, but the third child that we got, that we were pregnant with when we got kicked out of that apartment, like that, all of this was stress for us, but now that third child is the wonderful and amazing Ryan who's watching this service right now. He's the glue. He's like the center of our family. He's, he's like we could never imagine our family without him. So sometimes some of the best things that ever happened to you in life came from a curveball. Um, and that's true also with the story that we're looking at today. Uh, so the truth is, life is going to throw you a curve. Uh, but the best batters who follow the instructions of their coaches will stay in the batter's box and swing. They'll still try to hit that ball. And that's what this series is about. When the pitch is coming toward you, when the curveball looks like it's coming right at you, do you have the kind of moxie to stay in the box and wait for it to come back over the plate or not? Does pain draw you closer to God or push you away? Does fear and anxiety bring you closer to God or become the reason why you move farther away from Him? And that's, that's what this series uh, is about. In the first week, we talked about how anxiety and fear are, should be a trigger to move us to talk to God more often. And last week, Pastor Stephen talked about the way that fear can sometimes reveal to us the idols in our lives that we had more confidence and trust in than we did in God. And, and faith helps us put those things back into their proper place again. Uh, now, we're not going to be talking about COVID-19 every single weekend from now on. We're acknowledging that it exists, and it's the reason why we're meeting online. But today, we move from uh, the fear of, of tragedy, right? The curveball of tragedy, that's what we talked about last week, to the curveball of injustice. The way that life is sometimes unfair. There's personal injustices, there's societal injustices, but in both cases, it's when things are happening that shouldn't be happening. How many of you guys have ever been treated unfairly? If you're a little kid, like you, you traded baseball cards or something like that, or I don't know, how many of you guys have ever, if you've ever been treated unfairly, uh, click like right now, or find that hands up emoji and throw that out there for everybody else to see. I think that's something that we've all experienced. We've all gone through something unfair. Something that we weren't expecting, didn't think we deserved to have happen to us, happened to us. The question is, how do we handle that? What do we do now that that's, that that's happening? So we're going to be looking at the life of Jacob. I'm going to be making three observations from one of the most complicated pieces of the entire Bible. This is in the Torah. It's in the first book of the Bible. It's in the book of Genesis. And it's a really weird story about a very complicated family. I'm not going to be able to address everything that happens in this story. But we're going to make three observations from it that tell us about injustice. And then we're going to go to another place in the Bible to look at the way that we respond to injustice. So if you've got your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 29. It opens up with a story of a guy named Laban who has two daughters. And that's what it says, verse 16. Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah and the younger daughter was named Rachel. There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes is the way Moses puts it. But when you look at the, the Hebrew, which is what this was originally written in, you find out that this is just a very nice way of saying that she was... Really, really, really not pretty, right? That's, that's a nice way of saying it, that there's no sparkle in her eyes. Uh, Leah, on the other hand, but, excuse me, but Rachel, on the other hand, had a, this is kind of, it's a weird detail that Moses puts in there, but it's actually in, in, the, in the Hebrew text. She had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. Since Jacob was in love with Rachel, that's the younger sister, he told her dad, I'll work for you for seven years if you'll let me marry Rachel. 
your younger daughter if you'll give her to me as my wife. Agreed, Laban replied. I'd rather give her to you than anyone else. Stay and work with me. We're not going to talk about the injustices of, of arranged marriages. We're not gonna, we're not, that's not the point of today's teaching. Uh, as a dad who has a daughter, I see the value in that, if you don't mind me saying, right? Uh, so Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel, but his love for her was strong, so strong that it seemed like only a few days. And I get that also, right? Like he, he finds the girl that he wants to spend the rest of his life with. He's in love with her. She's in love with him. And so working for her father, his father-in-law, for seven years, like what's seven years in compared to the rest of my entire life? It's, it's just, it's not, it went by so fast for him. He falls in love with her. They, they, like he, finally the day comes, verse 21, the time comes for him to marry her. I fulfilled my agreement, he comes to him and says. Jacob said to Laban, now give me my wife so I can sleep with her. So Laban invited everyone in the neighborhood and prepared a wedding feast. But that night when it was dark, he switched the girls. He took, Le- he took Leah to Jacob instead of Rachel. Laban had given, it says in the next verse, verse 24, a servant, uh, Zilpah, to be her maid. But when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was Leah. Then he says, what have you done? Jacob raged at Laban. I worked seven years for Rachel. Why have you tricked me? And I understand that. I got, that's, that's unfair. He made an agreement with Laban. He said, I'll do this and you'll do this. He agreed. He did his part. But Laban did not do his. That's injustice. Again, there's other complications to this story that we don't have the time uh, to unpack right now today. But the situation being what it was, Jacob was lied to. Laban cheated him. He, he, he stole seven years of his life that he was never going to get back. And that brings me to the first of three observations that every single one of us will experience injustice. Injustice is inevitable in a broken world. That's the first observation. Uh, there's a verse in Job, where Job chapter 14, verse 1, where, where Job says, uh, how frail is humanity, how short is life, but how full of trouble. Like we live short lives in comparison to all of human history, but even the short lives that we live are full of tough things, rough situations, injustice. It's inevitable. It's, it's going to happen. Look at the response that Laban gives. It's, it's pathetic. It's weak. Here's what he says. Verse 28. It's not our custom here to marry off the younger daughter before we marry the firstborn, Laban replied. But wait until the bridal week is over. Then we'll give you Rachel too, provided you promise to work another seven years. That's, that's not right. That's, that's unfair. So Jacob has a choice. He's been treated unfairly. He has now experienced personal injustice. How is he supposed to respond to this? Um, Laban, here's the honest truth is Laban never even intended to keep his end of the deal. So this injustice had nothing to do with anything Jacob had ever done to Laban. It had more to do with the lack of character that Laban had. Which brings me to the second observation, is that often injustice says less about the victim than it does about the victimizer. That often, it's not that you did do something to deserve this. You probably didn't. This has more to do with the person who did this to you than it ever had to do with you deserving this. Sometimes we take injustice personally when it isn't. And it's not what we've done wrong as much as it is about the wrong around us that others have done. 
Laban wasn't out to get Jacob. He wasn't out to get everybody. Or excuse me, he was out to get everybody. And it wasn't personal toward Jacob, even if it was personal to Jacob. I had a, a teacher in high school. I told you we'd moved from Orlando to Denver. When we moved to Denver, it was so that my dad could get a job that meant that he was also going to be the administrator of a private Christian school. And one of the couples that worked in that, in that Christian school, uh, one of the spouses was involved in, in immoral activity and was fired. And the other spouse was my English comp teacher for my senior year. And on the final exam, they gave me a failing grade. So I was going to have to take that over summer school. And when I looked at the highest grade in the class, it was Pete Miles, who ended up going to an engineering school, School of Mines, actually, in Colorado. Super smart guy. He's the only reason why I tell you that. He got a 98. And it's not like there were essay questions that were subjective in their response. There was, uh, like, multiple choice. It was yes or no. Like, like, you could say, if he got that right, then I should have got that right because I chose the same thing. Now, I didn't copy off of his paper, but I'm just saying, I failed the test. He got a 98. But if what the teacher marked right for him, he had also marked right for me, then I should have had an 88. So I had been personally offended, sinned against, experienced personal injustice. Went to my dad to ask, and to his credit, he didn't fire the teacher who had wronged me. He taught me how to handle personal injustice. And that was that I was to go to the person and see if I could make it right, which is what Jacob did. Jacob went to Laban to try to make it right. I went to the teacher, tried to make it right. The teacher didn't. Then the next, this is Matthew chapter 18. Jesus tells us the appropriate response. If somebody has offended you, you go to the person to try to restore the relationship. If it doesn't go well, then you pick somebody you both mutually respect and go, and you try to restore the relationship with. And then if it doesn't work, if you're part of the same household of faith, the same community of faith, the same church, take it to the church, but then you've got to let it go. You can't hold that against them any longer, which is what I was taught to do by my dad, which was what Jacob also did toward, toward Laban. Uh, it's possible to do everything right and still see everything go wrong because we live in a broken world where broken people keep breaking people. Here's what Jacob does, verse 28. So Jacob agreed to work seven more years. A week after Jacob had married Leah, Laban gave him Rachel, the other sister. Uh, verse 30 says, so Jacob slept with Rachel too, and he loved her much more than he loved Le Leah. He then stayed and worked for Laban this additional seven years. So here's the question. Is this what we're all supposed to do? Is I'm supposed to just take this injustice and roll with it? Just supposed to make lemonade out of lemons? Now we're going to answer that question in just a minute. I want to make one more observation. So the first observation is this, that injustice is inevitable. Life is going to be unfair to you. And if it comes from a person, it says more about them than it says about you. And thirdly, our obsession with why this is happening is going to keep us from doing the next right thing since it has happened. Jacob could have sat around and asked why, 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 but then he would have never been able to decide what the next right thing to do was. And our preoccupation with why is going to keep us stuck as a victim of this injustice. When the better question is, what now? Our obsession with why keeps us from the what now. But the what now is the question that you've got to get to if you've personally suffered injustice. What now? I'm not saying that you have to make the same decision that Jacob did, but you have to make a decision. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at what Jesus says to do with injustice. Now, this first part of the instruction that we're going to read in the Bible about how to respond to injustice is going to be unbelievably difficult to hear and to do. But I want you to hang with me. I don't want you to be offended because there's two different types of injustice in the world. 
The first type of injustice is personal. It's when you, one person, have done something wrong to me, one person. That's the first type of injustice that requires a certain response. There's another type of injustice where either a person, group of persons, or a system is set up to unfairly treat other people. And when I see other people being mistreated, there's a completely different response God calls me to make toward injustice in that case. So if it only affects me, here's what Jesus has to say in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said this, You've heard that it's been said, the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That makes sense, right? That if somebody punches me in the eye, I should punch them in the eye. You punch me in the tooth, I'll punch you in the tooth. You steal my pencil, I'm stealing your pencil. You lie about me, I'm trashing you, right? He says, that's what you've heard, right? That the punishment must match the crime. And here's what Jesus says. But I say to you as an individual, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken, then give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Now I need to make a distinction between you as an individual and we as a society. There's another passage of Scripture that we're not taking the time to go into right now. And the Bible says that God instituted governments to restrain the deeds of evil men. So laws are created to give a society the right to make sure that the punishment matches the crime. So it's the society's job to make sure that a tooth for a tooth and an eye for an eye. The punishment matches the crime. But not for you and me as individuals. That's not our job. That's the job of the society. That's the job of the law. But that's not the job of the individual. My job as an individual is not to go around seeking out justice for myself against everybody who has wronged me. Jesus said that is not your response. Now I'm not saying he's saying that you should continue standing there if somebody's just beating the tar out of you. In the context of the sermon, he's saying, if somebody injures you, you're to allow yourself to be put in that position again. You don't give them back what they gave you. Now, is Jesus saying that it's okay for them to do this? That's not what he's saying at all. Look what the next passage of Scripture that we're going to look at uh, says. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 says this. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you're honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. So this isn't about me getting away from getting out of harm's way. If you are in harm's way, get out of harm's way. Absolutely. This is about you getting back at the people who've hurt you. That's what this is about. This isn't about you not defending yourself, right? This is about you trying to get back at people who have gotten you. That's what he's talking about. Do, do not give back evil for evil. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, do not take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. Why? Because God does a better job at revenge. <laughs> God has better justice. He keeps better score. So it's not that it's okay that they did this to you. You can go after them right, with your flawed sense of right and wrong, or you can trust that God is keeping score and nobody gets away with doing wrong and he'll take care of it for you. That's what Jesus calls us to do. 
Then he goes on to say, I will pay them back, says the Lord. I will take revenge. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. And doing this, you'll heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. God keeps better score than you do, and he does in the case of Jacob also. Jacob made the choice not to get back at his father-in-law and to leave vengeance to God, and he did. Throughout all of human history, you have way more Jacobs in the world than you do Labans. Why? Because Laban is known for his poor character. He's a scoundrel. It didn't hurt Jacob to go this direction. It ended up leaving, for all of history, 12 different tribes of Israel instead of only possibly two. But if it, this isn't always the path that you should take. So the first question is, is this happening? Is this affecting only me? If this is happening only me, then my question is, do I trust God to take care of this? If the answer is yes, God will take care of this, then I can forgive and move on. I don't have to get stuck in this cycle of revenge and hate. I, I can let it go. I can move on. But if this is affecting others, there's a completely different response. Romans, excuse me, Psalm chapter 82 says this, give justice to the poor and to the orphan. I'm not to fight for justice for myself. The question isn't my rights versus your rights. The question is, what's right? That's the question. If you're coming at me, I have to be strong enough to take this without feeling like I got to come at you. But if you're going after others, now I have a responsibility to step in the way and defend them. Because now this isn't about me doing what's right for me so that I can get my way over everybody else. It's not about me at all. It's not about me or my rights. It's about what's right. That's appropriate. So make sure you are responsible to give justice to the poor and the orphan. You are to uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. I'm to look for opportunities to stick myself in the path of those who are being oppressed and those who are oppressing them to give them relief. That's what I'm supposed to do. Rescue the poor and the helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. So when it comes to the injustice that others suffer around us, dang it, now it's time to throw down. I think the best example of the difference between these two different types of justice, if I can use this example coming from the position that I come from, is Martin Luther King Jr. How much personal injustice did he suffer without complaint? But see, he did everything he did, not so that he could get his, but so that they would not keep getting what they've been getting. There's a certain amount of righteous indignation that those of us who are followers of God should feel on the part of those who are being oppressed. If you personally come at me, I can be strong enough to take this. But I also have to be strong enough and wise enough, I'll add, to see you coming at them that I'm willing to step in the way and make you stop. That's, what I'm, that's the difference. Is that this, can't not, this cannot ever be about me Getting what's owed me. This should always be about what's right, not my rights. He's a beautiful example of it. I can turn my cheek, but I'm not going to make them turn theirs. You come at me, that's one thing. You come at my wife or my kids, bro, that's, that's a whole nother something, right? That's a whole nother thing. 
If it's just about me, fine, but if it's about others, then I will put myself in harm's way for them. Jesus talks about that in John chapter 15. He said there's no greater act of love than when you would put your life at risk on behalf of somebody else who is at risk. There's no greater demonstration of love than that, he said. Isaiah chapter 1 says this, Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the case of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, Jesus said this, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for what's right, for righteousness. If you have a hunger for a broken world being put back right, God says, I bless you for that, for you will be satisfied. James chapter 2, verse 15 says, that suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good is that kind of faith? What good is that? You know how everybody's upset with it, you say, uh, thoughts and prayers, sending thoughts and prayers, how everybody's sick and tired of that? I think God's sick and tired of that also. <laughs> like what good is it for you to say it's not fair they're being treated that way if you're not willing to step in and defend them? If you see injustices in our society, if you see the oppression of the strong, the powerful, and the influential against those who don't have it, and you don't use your power, your influence, and your resources on their behalf, then what tangible benefit is your faith to anybody else in the world? This is what we are. We are defenders of the oppressed. We are warriors for what's right, not my rights. So as people of faith and followers of Jesus, we run toward injustice and we work against it. One of the disciples of St. Paul, his name was Titus, he said this, our people must learn to do good by meeting the urgent need of others. Jesus goes on to say that this would be one of the most defining characteristics of those who had turned away from the brokenness that is in them and in the world to begin following after him. In, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, it says, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He'll sit on His throne. All the nations will be gathered in His presence and He'll separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on His right hand and the goats at His left. And the King Jesus will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed Me. I was thirsty and you gave Me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then they'll say, when did we do all of that? He said, when you did it for the least of these, when you did it for those who needed it, you were doing it, you were doing it for me. Now those who are in prison are guilty. So why should they go visit those who are guilty, those who deserve what they're getting? Because the question for those of us who are followers of Jesus is not why this is happening, but what we should do now that it is. That's what we should do. The question about my rights or about my rights being violated, the question about what's right and who is being violated. So I have a few questions. One, is this something that has happened only to me? Is what you're going through, what are you going through right now? You may have been laid off, right? Or you were lied to or you were betrayed or a loved one has walked away. If you personally have been sinned against, the question is, is this only affecting me? If so, can I trust God to make it right? If so, then I can forgive them and move on. And that's what I'm asking you to do. And I know, I'm not asking you. Jesus is. And that is a huge stinking ask, isn't it? It's huge. 
to let God handle the people who have mishandled us, to stop hating them, to stop carrying that in our heart and let God have it. But you're never going to be set free from this until you do. The second question, is this something that's happening to others? If so, is there anything you can do about it? Because if there is, then you must do something about it. Those of us who have positions of influence, those of us who have an education, those of us who are salaried instead of hourly, and our hours have not been cut back, we now have the opportunity, and I maybe should say responsibility, to leverage our influence, to leverage our power, to leverage our assets, our resources, our finances on behalf of those who don't have the education you have, who don't have the opportunities, the connections, the internships, the residencies, the introductions that you have. We now have the responsibility to leverage that on behalf of others. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 and 19 says this, Teach those who are rich in this world, those who are connected in this world, can I add? Those who have influence in this world, those who have opportunities, those who have privilege in this world. Teach those who have those things in this world not to be proud and not to trust in those things, which is so unreliable, but their trust, their faith should be in God. Who richly gives all that you need for your enjoyment. Tell them to use those things to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous towards those in need, those who do not have what they have. Always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up the treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. The question for us as followers of Jesus is this. What is most loving and compassionate? If I'm being personally offended, then the question is, what is most loving and compassionate toward the person who has offended me? Not abuse, but offended, right? Towards others, the question is, what is most loving and affectionate towards those who are being oppressed, towards those who are being hurt? The Bible teaches both personal responsibility and social responsibility. And we need to ask God for wisdom to know the difference between the two. If you're a kid, what this looks like is, you're not going to let people pick on other people anymore. You're going to use your influence to protect them. When you see somebody sitting at lunch by themselves, you, you might go sit with them or ask them to come sit with you. If you see someone playing by themselves, you're going to go play with them. Why? Because that is what Jesus would do. And because you love God, you'll do it too. What does that look like for us as adults? If you're still in school, listen, there's still people who are alone. There's still people who are, who are by themselves, who have no one. We look for ways to leverage our assets on behalf of those who don't have access to those same assets. It doesn't mean that we enable laziness. The Bible says that those who don't eat should not, excuse me, don't work, should not eat. I believe in personal responsibility. But there are reasons why people are where they are at, and sometimes it is systemic and beyond their control. And in those cases, it now becomes our responsibility. I'm thankful to God for every one of us who are leveraging all of our assets for the glory of God and the good of others. What I'm asking all of us to do is to pray and ask God to show us how we can do that even more. If you would, bow your head with me. God, I love you with all of my heart, and I'm thankful for what you have blessed me with. Help me to recognize that all of my blessings have been given to me to be a blessing to others. 
Forgive us for all of the ways in which we act like the goal of our lives is to make our lives better. When the goal of our lives is to bring you more glory by doing more good for others. I'm asking God for your will to be done in us so that your will can be done through us. I'm asking you to bless those who right now are being treated unfairly. Those who've been thrown a curve and are freaking out because it looks like the ball's going to hit them. God, give them the patience to stay in the box and to swing when it crosses the plate. God, let your will be done in us so that your will can be done through us. That's our prayer. We ask this in the great name of Jesus and we all say together, amen.